Welcome to The Social Brain. This is episode 31. I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone. I run the channel Sense of Mind. You can see there. And uh, this is my co-host, Taylor Guthrie. He runs uh, Cellular, Cellular Republic a channel. And uh, he is. He, we're here to talk about free will and uh, the neuroscientific base of that. It's going to be a great episode. So uh, I'm going to hand it off to Taylor to get us started. Yeah, this is a this has been a really fascinating topic to dive into. Something that I think we've wanted to, to kind of jump into for a while. Uh, it can feel like kind of philosophical quicksand at some points, but I really want you to 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 really think about all of the decisions that you've made in your life about who you want to be, what you've wanted to do, your preferences, all of these things that feel subjectively to be coming from a place of of decision, of choice. Of there's somebody making those decisions. If you really look at a lot of the past science, the physics, the neuroscience, all of these things, they're leading us to really question how free these decisions really are, uh, which can seem kind of scary at the, at the forefront of like, okay, how much control do I actually have over my life if I'm being pushed around by all of these forces, right? Uh, about the, the neurons firing, the hydrogen molecules moving, that it's just this chain of causes that is eventually leading to all of these decisions that we think are free, uh, but may not be. And there's a lot of really prominent neuroscientists, physicists, all of these people that take really strong positions uh, against us having any free will at all. Uh, and that's something that I, I really want to, to dive into today is to think about the fact that most of the general population believes in free will like vast majority of the population believes that we are making free decisions. We are like contemplating, we're deliberating. There's someone kind of pulling the strings, right? Uh, but when you look at the scientific community, I'd say the vast majority is on the opposite side of that, that a lot of these scientists, a lot of these neuroscientists are coming to the conclusion that based on where science is leading us, that we might be kind of living in an illusion of free will. And so we really want to explore this idea. Uh, this is usually kind of termed determinism, right? This idea that there's just this whole chain of causes that leads to whatever we're doing. Uh, but stick through too, because at the end of the episode, once we kind of go through some of this deterministic stuff, we're really going to explore a lot of the emerging science now that may be challenging a lot of that stuff and kind of putting us back in the driver's seat uh, and really kind of giving us some type of excuse to say that we do have some will. So, cool. Yeah, yeah, and as uh, we get into this, uh, just before we get into this, we just wanna mention a couple things that are coming to the social brain. Uh, you guys will start to notice some changes in 2024, some positive, cool changes. Um, we're going to be setting up another tier on Patreon. We're going to have some bonus content coming. Uh, so be on the lookout for that and check it out. Um, and as always, if you want to support our show, you can go to patreon.com slash the social brain or just scan that QR code at the top of the screen here. And um, or there's a link in the description. All those uh, donations that are extremely highly appreciated and uh, we want to start to give you guys more uh, more incentive to do that and um, we're going to be doing that in 2024 so um, first of all just thank you everybody who's been watching this show for the past year and a half i guess now um, it's been awesome and i can't believe we're 31 episodes in 
it's and and we have everybody kind of sticking along it's really cool to see the engagement to see the comments so uh keep that coming uh and we have i think some really cool topics and ideas coming down the pipeline for this next year and if you have any ideas uh for things that you want to hear more about then then let us know but i uh, let's let's dive in let's talk about free will yeah okay so let's let's do what we like to do let's give some definitions <laughs> what is free will um I guess, as always, I like to go to the American Psychological Association's Dictionary <laughs> of Psychology uh, because I think they uh, this definition that they provide is particularly kind of relevant for our discussion. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's like a whole paragraph, but I just want to put this into the conversation before we kind of give our more nuanced um, definitions of the term. But they define, the APA defines free will as the power or capacity of a human being for self-direction. The function of the will is to be inclined or disposed toward an idea or action. The concept of free will thus suggests that inclinations, dispositions, thoughts, and actions are not determined entirely by forces over which people have no independent directing influence. So that's kind of just a starting point for our, our discussion here. But Taylor, like, what do you, how do you think about free will? Uh, I mean, an interesting point that came out in that definition that you just said is that it highlighted human beings, right? Uh, this is something that, that can be a little bit contentious for, for certain circles, for certain people. But usually when the term free will is used, we're talking about human cognition. Uh, and this is something we're going to dive into a little bit near kind of the end of the episode, talk about whether or not other animals have any will at all. Uh, but this idea of free will is very couched in the cognitive abilities of a human, the, the ability that we have to deliberate, to think about options, to, to think semantically, right, about uh, ob like what objects are, the, the meaning of those objects, how they relate to other things, our ability to categorize all of this gives us this, this landscape to then choose between all of these different options. Um, and and that's, that's kind of what we're gonna question right now, right? Is the idea, the definition of free will really instantiates this idea that it's, it's free from these deterministic processes, free from this causal chain of events that maybe come from, from physics. Yeah, yeah, and it seems like uh, there, there's just, already there's a def difference between voluntary and involuntary action. So um, I think n nobody would really argue that there's, we have complete control over everything we do. Like I was just reading this passage from Robert Sapolsky this morning, who is a, a hard, uh, takes a hard line against free will. And he was saying, you know, if you completely believe that everything is freely willed that you do, then you would have to agree that when someone's having a, a, a grand mal epileptic seizure and they're flailing their limbs and they accidentally, you know, hit someone in the face, that that person should be held morally responsible or, or that they they somehow willed that. Uh, so I think we, we can agree that at least that there's there are reflexes or there are, you know, completely involuntary actions. Uh, and then there's this other realm of kind of what we're we're more interested in when we're talking about free will, which is the voluntary volitional actions that require more deliberation, more cognition um, on the part of the organism. 
Yeah, and I mean, some good examples of this, right, is that you shine a light in someone's eyes, their, their pupils are going to dilate, right? You, you hit someone's uh, tendon on their knee with a hammer, their leg is going is, is gonna, to uh, come up, right? Uh, there are a lot of things in our body that we have no control over. We're not controlling our heartbeat. We're not controlling our lungs. Sometimes we are, right? But uh, there's so many immune system, all of this stuff. Like you really think about all of the processes within the body, within biology, within the brain, uh, how much of that, if, if will, if free will is a thing, how much of that do we have control over? And the whole idea, I think, behind free will that we really want to explore through the whole episode is whether or not the mind, what we experience in terms of consciousness, uh, has any type of causal power on the rest of the body, right? Can the mind actually get the body to change? Is the mind something that has the power to do that? Yeah, and mm. and as I we kind of alluded to, or I was mentioning that you know holding people morally responsible uh, seems to have a lot to do with free will. So. It's kind of the basis of our, our legal systems in many ways that we, you know, the, the conscious intention to do something uh, is is more significant in terms of like moral and, and legal, uh, uh, you know, systems than if you didn't intend to do something. That's why there's maybe a different difference between murder and manslaughter, for example, murder being uh, intentional and manslaughter unintentional. I know there's, there's more to it than that. I'm not a legal scholar or anything, but, uh, you know, we recognize this in the legal system to some extent, um, at least that def difference between kind of intentional voluntary actions and, or unintentional or involuntary actions. Yeah. Every legal system in the history of the world has been kind of created on the basis that we can hold people accountable for the decisions that they make. And that's something that we really want to be kind of paying attention to as a through line through all the stuff that we're talking about. Because if we kind of start taking the stance where we're saying that free will maybe is an illusion or doesn't exist, uh, then we really have to think about the, the moral implications of that, about whether or not we should be praising someone for doing something good or holding someone responsible for doing something bad, right? Uh, like Andrew was hinting at, I mean, in the legal system, when you're prosecuting someone, there's a term called mens rea that, uh, I mean, roughly translates to like guilty mind. But that idea is that I had guilty intent. I had, I was making a voluntary choice. I knew that there was a, a good thing to do and a bad thing to do. Those are terrible words, right? I knew that there was something that was frowned on by society and something that wasn't. Uh, and I went one way and not the other. And now I should be held accountable for that. I. Uh, and so when we're kind of exploring these things and, and really kind of looking at the, the prominent neuroscientists, Sapolsky, Sam Harris, uh, John Dylan Haynes, all of these people that, that really take these stances on, on determinism, there's also this extra element of like, okay, if we're going to throw free will out the window, what are we going to do culturally to try to understand the ideas of responsibility? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I think we'll probably talk about this more throughout the episode, but I would just, I would just put a caveat there that I think uh, sometimes when people like, like Sapolsky specifically talks about, okay, if there is no free will, then we just have to kind of, he doesn't fully say this, but, but that the idea of punishment um, in sort of the, the legal or, or moral realm is uh, somewhat incoherent. And I think that that's, that's too far because I think just, just looking at, at incentives, if you just look at sort of behavioral um, 
incentives, punishment could, could still have quite a strong role in our society, even if we recognize, okay, this person's not, um, you know, responsible for their actions. If, if we go that route, um, I still think there's, there's a lot of the legal system, probably most of what we have could be preserved. Um, but anyway, I think, again, not a legal scholar. So let's get into some of the neuroscience and why maybe some of the, the the classic studies that made people start to question, um, well, not start to question, but some of the neuroscience that sort of started to, uh, bring a, uh, a loud discussion about free will to the table. Because determinism's been an idea for a long time. Uh, the, the Stoics talked about it. Like there's tons of these religious thing, uh, entities that talk about fate, all of these things. Uh, but it wasn't until like the 1960s and the 1980s that we really started to bring neuroscience into the fold and started to say, okay, maybe there is something about the brain that is kind of this argument against free will. Uh, and this actually started with Corniber uh, and Dika in the 1960s. They were doing some studies with EEG. So these are recordings that they take from the scalp that are picking up electrical activity. And they were having people do voluntary actions. So I want you to move and grab this or do this, right? And what they noticed was that there was this buildup of electrical activity near the frontal lobe uh, that was preceding voluntary motion. So it was this kind of buildup of activity and then they moved. And the idea at the time when they found this, this was called the readiness potential. It was saying that there's there's this kind of this thought process that's happening before I move that it can be akin to deliberation, right? To our subjective experience of making decisions, of thinking them through, of kind of weighing the options, right? Uh, and they thought that that's maybe what this signal was, that this was the neural signature of, of will. And they're saying like, look, we have something in the brain that is akin to this thought process that leads to action. Um, but then it's, that kind of gets challenged. Do you want to maybe take a stab at Libet? Yeah. Yeah. So then there's Benjamin Libet, uh, in the 1980s, who was exploring this readiness potential, looking kind of more deeply into it. And the idea behind his experiments were that he'd have participants who were being recorded, um, have their EEGs being recorded. And, um, Basically, they were asked to perform a spontaneous action, just pressing a button uh, while looking at a clock on the wall, uh, right? So, yeah, and uh, and the idea was that they they were to choose when they were going to press that button, and then um, record when the time was that they chose to press that button, and. Uh, so, or when they felt the conscious intention to move. And so the idea was like, okay, um, you know, they're looking at the clock, they're going to press this button and they're deciding when to press that button. Um, what they found was that this readiness potential, this neural signature of the conscious intent to move um, occurred about half a second before they recorded they had that conscious intent to move. So it's this idea that there's this sort of something going on under the surface of awareness that is actually deciding when you're going to move uh, versus, and then about half a second later, you become aware of that. That was sort of the the interpretation or that's been an interpretation of it ever since. So this served as kind of a basis to challenge the idea of free will. 
I have some thoughts on that experiment, but but maybe <laughs> you take a stab at it, Taylor. Yeah, so I, I think we really want to highlight that this is, I think, one of the most paramount experiments in the free will debate in neuroscience. Like, this is something that gets quoted all the time when people are talking about, like, look, free will doesn't exist. This is really the experiment that started a lot of it. And I think something that's really important to highlight is that in that experiment, the the participants were freely deciding when to move. Like, it was, it was completely up to them. They could just sit there and not do anything for a long time and then say, like, okay, I'm going to push it now. Uh, and it was that moment that they were looking at this clock and they were saying, okay, I just decided right now that I want to move. Where's the clock hand? And they looked at where the clock hand was and they were able to trace that back and say, okay, we have this readiness potential that we discovered back in the 1960s or whatever, that was supposedly this like signal for will. And we can see the ready, readiness potential had already started before they reported that they had any intent to move. And the idea behind this was really like, okay, the brain has already decided what to do. This whole intent of me making a decision, that's something that, that is an illusion in this case, right? That, that the brain had already picked what to do, the, the buildup had already started, and then all of a sudden I got this feeling that was just like, oh yeah, you know, I wanna move. But that feeling was something that was just like, oh, hey, hey, remember we're moving. Uh, uh, they usually call this like post-diction, right? So, and there's lots of accounts of this. Uh, and it's a really strong argument against free will, actually. Uh, and there's there's some reasons to believe that there might be some holes in this that we can maybe get into later. But uh, you see this a lot in split brain patients. So if you cut the corpus callosum of someone's brain, which is the, the thing that connects the two halves of the brain together, uh, the right half of the brain doesn't have language. It can't really talk. And so when you show items to the right brain, you, the person can't actually say that they're seeing anything. You're like, what are, they, what are you seeing? They're like, I don't know. I can't see anything. But then all of a sudden, the left brain will make up a whole story. So if they showed them like a chicken to the left brain and a shovel to the right brain, uh, then they're going to say that like, oh, you know, there was, a, there was a shovel to pick up chicken poop or whatever. Uh, they make up this whole story to, to explain what happened. And the idea behind this basically is that the brain is trying to make logical sense of what's going on in the world. And so when something maybe doesn't make sense, the brain is going to confabulate a story to make you feel okay about what's happening. And so the idea that's kind of come out of these circles is that we're not actually making a decision, but let's say that my arm goes up, right? My brain now has to explain to me like, Oh, hey, Taylor, your arm just went up. That was you that did that. Don't freak out. You know, it's not it's not something that's pulling your arm up. Right. Uh, it's it's making me kind of sane. It's making me understand that the, that I'm OK in the world or whatever. Uh, and so it's interesting. This like Andrew said, this experiment has a lot of holes that have been picked in it before. But really what we wanted to kind of show is that this was the kind of the first kind of move towards neuroscience really taking a hard stance against free will. Yeah, yeah, and I think those are all important to talk about the the fact that the brain does do a lot of, you know, post hoc reasoning about why we did what we did. But I I look at the Libet experiment and I go like, okay, what was the actual result? It was five about five hundred milliseconds was the time difference, and I have to just like from a human being perspective be like, that's not very much time, and. For me, like if I'm sitting in that experiment and I'm the subject doing it, I'm not, I, I, I don't know that 500 milliseconds 
uh, is enough for, for me as an observer to look and be like, oh, it definitely happened before the conscious intention. Like it seems um, if it were like 10 seconds before or even a few seconds before, I'd be a little bit more uh, inclined to to agree with that interpretation. But I just I just think that the the time difference is so small that it's hard to really be like, is this just noise? Is this just, okay, did you really decide at that time on the clock or, or were you like just delayed a little bit in your, um, you know, your reading of it? Regardless, like Taylor said, there's still some really important ideas that kind of uh, are related to this. The fact that, you know, that these split brain patients can, um, can, can fabulate stories about uh, what they're seeing, even though like without realizing that that's what they're doing, but that we can actually show that experimentally. I think those are a lot more convincing to me to say like, okay, there is this, this uh, kind of post hoc reasoning that we do this post diction. Um, but I think as, as far as the, the free will debate goes, it's, it's really a stretch, I think, to, to say, oh, the Libet experiments prove that we don't have free will. And it, it, it's interesting because there's there's a lot of people that that take a pretty hard line on Libet and say like like look this is the the brain was doing something before you decided to make a decision. I I agree with you too, Andrew. Like half a millisecond. Like I have to as a participant, I have to look at where the clock hand is and push a button and like think through this whole process. Like that to me, I think would take like half a second to, to do right. I, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of skip ahead a little bit because there's, there's also some other kind of damning evidence that comes from MRI because this kind of started a wave of people looking at kind of what's going on neuroscientifically in terms of decision-making in terms of whether or not we actually have decisions that we're making. And there, so John Dylan Haynes has done a lot of this work where they can actually predict. So let's say you have to choose left or right with a certain button and you can decide whenever you want to, to push these buttons. Uh, they can predict up to seven seconds before you push the button, whether you're going to go left or right. Right. And that too, I mean, this is something that, that Sam Harris brings up all the time as like evidence that look, look, we can predict someone's choice before they even make it. Uh, and, and it's interesting because when you look at like John Dylan Haynes' work, uh, they are actually really good at predicting for not just these binary choices that are like left or right, but choices that involve some type of intent, right? Like whether, whether you're going to pick tea or coffee, right? You have strong preferences because of past experience, because of all of these things. They could predict whether you're going to pick tea or coffee six days ago, right? based on this activity in your brain that would kind of lead you to have those preferences in the first place. And so I think the really important thing is to, to really kind of highlight where these arguments are in terms of determinism, because I agree with Andrew. I think that there's holes in a lot of this that we're going to kind of get into uh, that still leave room for, for will. Uh, and even like the John Dylan Haynes experiments, when you, when you hear a lot of these things talked about, uh, when Sam Harris brings these things up and Sapolsky brings them up, they rarely talk about what the actual accuracy was in these models. When John Dylan Haynes is able to predict whether you're going left or right, he can significantly predict above chance, but it's usually like 55%. Chance is 50, right? <laughs> so there's another 45% where they're getting it wrong, right? So anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I guess I, I just want to kind of put my cards on the table because if you've been watching my channel for a while and seen my 
interviews from way back, um, including with Taylor. I think my first ever uh, talk with Taylor online was I, I would always ask people, what do you, what is your stance on free will? And um, and then I would kind of explain mine. And I I used to be a really hardline determinist. I was convinced by uh, some of the more of the arguments we're going to get into here, but just by the basic idea that the brain is controlled by or is is subject to the laws of physics, and that as far as we understand, the laws of physics are deterministic. But I was also convinced by a I think what is a better argument, which is um, Sam. Har I don't know if it's actually original to him, but it's something that he's been a very clear. Um, explainer of, which is kind of a more experiential argument. I'll kind of talk about that in a, in a little bit, but I think it's good to continue to, uh, to question these ideas because I'm not saying like, I'm a, I'm fully a believer in free will now or not. I, I'm like, I am legitimately on the fence about what it is and what we know about it, but I want to try, I think we both have the intention the conscious, freely willed intention to um, to uh, give the best arguments from both sides in this um, in this episode. So, do you want to? Should we talk a little bit about physics? Or, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I mean that okay. that really kind of leads up to everything that you're talking about, right? These arguments are really strong in terms of determinism, and they've been around for a long time. I mean, Newtonian physics was a big one that started all of this with like the laws of motion. He talked about the universe being clockwork, right? So it was this predictive idea, right? He basically described this idea that every action is caused by some other action, right? And so you can essentially trace back everything to like a prime mover, to like the first cause, which it would be kind of the, the big bang, right? Uh, and then from there, you have all of these things colliding into each other that are causing the other things to do something. And it's this huge just causal chain of things that are happening. And his idea, which kind of stretches into kind of uh, Einsteinian physics, uh, general relativity, and all of these kind of things, uh, was that if you could truly understand the, the entire causal state of the system, every single thing that had happened to cause that thing to be where it's at, you would be able to predict with 100% certainty what was going to happen next, because it's this domino of causal chains. Uh, and I mean, Einstein kind of famously was quoted saying, you know, God doesn't roll the dice. Uh, and this was around the time that like quantum physics was was taking hold. And there was uh, the Schrodinger equation, the Copenhagen equations that we're talking about. Uh, when you get down to really small particles into electrons, uh, protons, and all of these things that uh, it may not be as deterministic as these, these kind of macroscopic planets and large bodies of things moving around may look, that there's actually kind of probability associated with it, that, that electrons exist in kind of probabilistic waves. And it's only when we observe them that they collapse down into kind of an idea. Uh, and so that's kind of setting the stage for, for what we might argue later in terms of still having kind of some wiggle room for free will in terms of the quantum mechanic part of it. But the deterministic part is really kind of largely couched in the idea that we have physical laws that govern the universe. Right. Yeah. And all matter is dictated by those physical laws. Yeah. And and um, 
I think the the place where sort of the quantum mechanics becomes relevant is like you were saying with Einsteinian and Newtonian physics, if if you could understand, if you could somehow know the position and velocity of every single particle in the universe, you would be able to predict everything going forward in the future. Um, but that is not true in, in quantum mechanics, or at least many interpretations of quantum mechanics, because you can't know the position and velocity of every single particle. You can't even know it at any given time for a single particle. So there's this, this uncertainty built into reality at the most fundamental level. And it's not that our instruments can't um, predict or that we, we just have this lack of um, you know, uh, precision with our instruments that don't allow us to understand the position and velocity of a given particle. It's that, that according to the, the mathematics of quantum physics, uh, there is just uncertainty built into the system. And I, like I said, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm also not a physicist. So this is like, you know, I'm just trying to give a, a high level understanding of, of my understanding of this field and uh, how it relates to what we're talking about. To be fair, though, we're not saying that just because there's sort of probabilities and maybe randomness built into the structure of reality, that that means that free will exists because, um, you know, as many people have pointed out, randomness is not the same as free will. And so even if there's there's probabilities built into the system, uh, that doesn't give us, um, you know, at, at least not a sort of um, totally free will. But I but it might it might um, do something for the arguments for free will. Um, but anyway, if that I hope that makes sense. No, it definitely does because I've I've heard that. I mean, I've heard Sam Harris say that too. You know, it's either it's either this long chain of causes that free will doesn't exist, or it's randomness. And if it's random, then it's not free either, right? <laughs> uh, and it's it's a really strong argument. Uh, and this is this is where the people that are arguing for free will actually have an uphill battle to climb. Right. Uh, however you say that anyway uh, yeah. <laughs> but the uh, the other side of this too is biological determinism which is often called biological fatalism uh, it's a very kind of damning term right uh, and it's I think somewhat appropriate because it traces back to the idea of genetics right so uh, Darwin was a big part of this Mendelian genetics uh, once we started to like understand the the genetic code and what it was doing and these proteins that were being built that it really started to look like okay the the genome is coding for all of these proteins and those proteins do specific things. They interact with other proteins according to physical laws of nature. Uh, they create these biological environments that are dictated by these physical laws that we just talked about, right? And when all of that builds up, it starts to look like, okay, my personality is the way that it is because of my genetics, because of like all of these predetermined biological things that predisposed me to be a certain type of human, to be the certain height, to have certain eye color, to have a certain type of intelligence, right? That those things are not free, right? We don't choose any of those things. They're, they're kind of placed upon us. 
Uh, and that becomes a really strong argument too against free will because it's saying like, look, there's all of this, this biological stuff, even stuff that we talked about at the beginning of the episode in terms of our kind of biological mechanisms that we have no access to, right? We can't control our immune system. We can't control our heartbeat, any of these things. I mean, there's things that we can do to kind of interact with them, I guess, if, if we start to kind of make the, the case for free will. Uh, but in terms of these arguments against it, biological fatalism is, is this idea that like there are all of these forces at play, all of these cells interacting with one another that are not kind of, they don't have will, they're just kind of moving along to these forces of nature. And that ultimately causes this kind of complex electrical thing that creates this illusion of free will. Yeah. Um, I like to think about this in terms of if you guys have ever heard of a Rube Goldberg machine. So like a Rube Goldberg machine is like these, these convoluted contraptions that are meant to do something really simple. So like, like light a candle, but you start it by pushing over a, a stack of dominoes and they fall over and then hit like a, a lever that pops a balloon that pulls down a string and then eventually you get this candle lit. And there's some really amazing videos on YouTube of, of people building. There's like contest every year actually for this. But um, the point of that is that I, I studied molecular biology in college and I started at a certain point, I just started thinking like, okay, in a certain sense, a cell is just a really complicated really sophisticated Rube Goldberg machine, a molecular Rube Goldberg machine. And so there's just dominoes falling. There's just, you know, um, proteins changing their conformation, molecules binding to receptors, cells um, changing, uh, you know, their configurations, uh, dividing. Um, and, and if you build that up to the entire human, including the brain and the nervous system, uh, well, then we are just really complicated sophisticated Rube Goldberg machines uh, that have this like consciousness riding in the middle of it. Um, but that none of our behavior or attention or anything um, is anything except this sort of, you know, domino effect of, of molecules affecting molecules, cells affecting cells. Um, and I think that can, for me, that was, that was at a certain point, a nail in the coffin for free will. But again, I, I'm now, we'll, we'll talk later on, but I'm not as convinced that that is a knockdown nail in the coffin argument. It's a really fun one to explore because uh, I, I didn't think that there were prominent neuroscientists and, and physicists and things that actually believed in free will. Uh, and so it's been cool to see this other side of the argument that we're going to get into. Uh, but I think First, I think it's important to kind of highlight some of the main kind of voices. Uh, and Sapolsky is a big one. Robert Sapolsky wrote a whole book about life being determined, right? And we we move from genetics, and he's he's a geneticist, right? He does a lot of stuff with molecular biology and all of these things. Uh, but he also understands the role that the environment plays. And we as a culture have kind of moved away from this just kind of pure biological fatalism to understanding that it's not just DNA that's causing things to happen. It's the whole nature nurture debate, right? That there's also these environmental factors that, that are moving us around in certain ways that are actually causing conformational changes in the way that DNA is expressed and all of these things. Uh, but when you go this route, and this is something that Sapolsky talks a lot about is that, okay, 
we're either being pushed around by our biology or we're being pushed around by these external factors in our environment, but we're still not free, right? Either way, we're being pushed in one direction or the other. Uh, and he makes these arguments about, uh, said, he said, look, at, you have this guy that's, that's about to pull the trigger, right? And we can trace back what happened five minutes ago that led to him wanting to pull that trigger? What happened two hours ago that led to him wanting to pull that trigger? What happened during his development, right? Did he have a, a really unstable household? Was he abused as a child, right? Were, the, were they these, these external factors that really shaped him? And when you look at antisocial personality disorder, which is often referred to as like psychotic, psychotics, right? Uh, that's not really the term they use anymore, but uh, that's what the general population knows. Most of them, when you look at the percentage, had really tough childhoods. And so it's this idea that these factors that are that are kind of shaping our behavior, shaping the way that we make our decisions, are dependent on that, right? And you can go even further back. And this is the argument that he makes, right? That the reason you had a really tough childhood was because of this generational trauma of like the people that raised you were raised in this terrible way. And that was built into the culture that we can trace back thousands of years. And uh, right. And there's all of these factors that lead up to this decision point now. Right. And this is, this is where his argument really lies in this just string of causes, whether they're physical, whether they're genetic, whether they're environmental, it doesn't matter because all of those things are impinging on this moment right now. And they are incredibly constraining whatever it is you're able to do. Yeah. And I think there is so much uh, value of value in that argument because he talks about like, look, you know, um, back way back in the past, we would have said that somebody who is suffering from psychosis uh, that that's their fault, that they are this, you know, even, but now we can look at and see, oh, there's an organic, you know, neurological cause to this, why somebody might act this way. And we don't necessarily like put the blame on him. And I think, I think uh, there is something really important to, to pay attention to there, that many of the things that we used to blame people's free will for, we now recognize, okay, that's a result of this disorder or this uh, situation that they found themselves in. Um, and I think we should really be compassionate and understanding that there are, if, if there is any free will, there are strong constraints upon it from all of these physical, biological, chemical, but also cultural, environmental, genetic, developmental, um, all these factors coming together to that moment. So there, there's something really important about that. We can't just, you know, uh, ignore that argument. We have this fantastic question that just came in that, that I love. And I, I apologize if I don't pronounce your name right. You, you did ya. Uh, but can't we see free will more as a spectrum than a black and white phenomenon? The closer an event gets to the present, the more deterministic we act. Uh, I, I love this idea. And this is something that uh, there's a there's a great debate between Kevin Mitchell, which we'll talk about a little bit later, who's a big proponent of free will and Sapolsky. Uh, and 
he very much highlights this idea that there is this kind of gradient to agency that sometimes we act very deterministic and sometimes we don't right and it gets back into this idea of kind of reflexiveness versus voluntary action uh, that there are cases where our will is a lot more constrained than other cases. And this is something that actually kind of bothers me a little bit when I listen to Sapolsky make these arguments, uh, is that the idea is that if there are any external causes that are impinging on our decision right now, then it's not free at all, right? And it kind of it's kind of the straw man position of saying that like, if free, total free will doesn't exist, then will at all doesn't exist. Uh, and I really like this, this gradient idea because uh, I've even heard him say like, okay, there are these moments where you're brushing your teeth and you say, you know what, I'm going to brush my bottom teeth instead of my top teeth. And Sapolsky actually says in these interviews, he's like, okay, I'll give you a little bit of free will there. And that really bugged me because I was like, okay, there either is will or there isn't, right? If you're taking a really hard line on determinism, then then there shouldn't be any will at all. I shouldn't be able to say I'm going to brush my bottom and not my top, right? Because all of that should be controlled by these deterministic factors that led to the moment. Um, and I think what we're going to get to with some of these other arguments in terms of free will uh, are really this idea that we can't really call it free. And this is something that I've had a problem with for a long time with the term free will is it sets up this idea that we're able to do whatever we want and think about whatever we want, whatever it is, right? Uh, and that's not the case because most of what he is arguing, what Sapolsky is arguing is true, right? There are tons of external factors that impinge on my decision-making ability right now. But the question is, is that making my choice like not a choice at all? Or is it just biasing my choice? Yeah. Yeah. And there was a really interesting part of the uh, debate between Sapolsky and Kevin Mitchell, um, where uh, they were talking about brain damage to the frontal lobes and where they're both kind of agreeing, look, that's a case where if you damage the prefrontal cortex, you can expect that there is going to be some deficits in, a, you know, let's say, let's call it like rational behavior or, or um, you know, moral decision making. Um, and, and it was interesting how Sapolsky interpreted that as, look, like that shows that there's not free will, because if you just damage this part of the brain, like, well, you know, this person's decision-making power goes out the window. But then Kevin Mitchell says, well, to me, in my interpretation, that appears to be evidence that there is something, there is some kind of control over this system. There is something, you know, maybe we don't want to call it free, but there's, there's a, a will, there's something happening uh, there that can be damaged. And so he's saying, look, we can have this naturalistic uh, interpretation of, of free will. But we, we'll get to that in a second. I think we could uh, talk a little bit about Sam Harris because yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of Sam Harris in many ways. Uh, I, I love his waking up app and I've, I've read a lot of his work and I think he's a super intelligent, um, but so is Sapolsky, both of them. But um, Sam Harris has this great argument where he talks about, okay, just think about this moment right now, this conscious moment. You say, you you know, I'm going to reach for this cup, right? And pick up this cup. What, in, in my experience, what was it like to make that decision? And he argues, it's just arising into consciousness. The, 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 the idea of 
you know, even my decision, okay, what was the example I was going to use in that situation? Like, why did I choose, oh, I'm going to pick up the cup rather than pick up, you know, the mouse on my desk. Um, that urge, that desire just appears in consciousness and we act on it, right? And even in the acting itself is also kind of mysterious. You don't know how you're moving your arm and all the muscle contractions and everything that that is actually happening there. But it's this, this moment of decision. Why did it strike you as the right decision to do that and not another? And he, he sort of extrapolates this to the rest of decision-making, the rest of human behavior that, look, you pay attention to any given conscious moment and your decisions are fundamentally mysterious. They're spontaneously arising into your awareness and then happening right? Uh, you're, you're observing them happen, you know, as the conscious you, um, but you aren't, you know, going into your mind and going through like all the possible options for your next behavior and then choosing, okay, this one, it just kind of comes into consciousness and feels like, oh, that's the right one to do right now. And to me, that is a very strong argument. I have some thoughts about it uh, that kind of newly started thinking about, but, but what, how does that argument strike you, Taylor? Yeah. I mean, I've heard it uh, another way too. He said, you know, think of, think of a city, any city. Okay. You just thought of one. Why did you pick that one? Right. Out of the hundreds and thousands of cities that there are, why did that one pop into your mind? Did you actually decide on that city or did your brain just kind of bring that to the forefront? Right. Um, and I, I listened to that argument, too. And and I I, I love this idea, too, because uh, I mean, it gets really into kind of the default mode network that we've talked about before. And uh, a lot of the fact that like most of our thoughts are not things that we're creating. Right. When you sit and you meditate, I mean, Sam Harris comes to a lot of this because of his like mindful practice. Right. When you sit there and you meditate and you're mindful, you actually see that your thoughts are just arising. Right. And usually the thoughts that are kind of solutions to problems and, and addressing kind of needs that we have as organisms, right? Did I take the trash out? Am I, am I still in trouble with my, my significant other, right? All of these things that are just kind of arising and just kind of swirling around and we're just kind of observing all of these things. I, where I have some trouble with, with some of this is when I did his city experiment, right? I, I had like three or four cities come to mind. And then I went through a deliberative process of saying, you know what, okay, I had like Las Vegas and Athens and Rome. And, and then I'm like, okay, well, out of those three, you know, which one, which one should I pick, right? I, and I think that that's more kind of uh, indicative of what our experience as a human is like. I mean, that gets into this idea of deliberation. Uh, and it really kind of ties into, I think, what we're getting to now in terms of we have to accept if there is any will at all, this idea of constrained will, not necessarily free will, then it's at the end of this long chain of things that are happening, right? Uh, and something that I have some issue with, with a lot of the Sam Harris stuff is that there's still like, I'm still observing it, right? There's still something that is come, like all of that information is coming to me. Like I might not be creating that thought, but then I am now choosing what to do next. Yeah. Uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I've been thinking about it like a lot. I've been 
meditating more often than I have in the past. And um, one of the things I noticed about this argument is it it seems to depend on our ability to shift attention or to shift the what we're um, aware of, like changing what you're attending to. I have come like it seems to me that in my experience, there is something that I as the conscious part of me is doing, and that is that subtle shift of attention. And that might not seem like a very strong uh, form of free will, but I think we've talked about attention a lot on this show. And the truth is that attention, what comes into uh, awareness through attention is a a strong um, influence on our behavior and on our decision-making. And I think that there, there is something to the idea that we do have this mysterious ability to subtly shift attention. And I'll be the first to admit that it's not easy. It's not something that is like uh, you can fully control your attention. Again, like we come back to this idea of constraints because something can grab your attention, you know, an alarm goes off and all of a sudden, you know, you're thinking about that or your phone buzzes or uh, someone says your name across the room and you're just automatically drawn to that. So there's these different forms of attention but I think that there is, there is something in our experience of even when you're, you're in this meditative state that shifting your attention is possible. And I, I do think that that, to me, if, if free will is anything, that's kind of what it is. I, and I, I don't know. I mean, how it works, <laughs> I don't know how that fits into the fig- picture of you know, physics as whether it's deterministic or sort of um, quantum mechanically uncertain or uh, how this fits into our understanding of the brain and biology. I don't know, but we also don't know what consciousness is, how it works, how it's produced. You can watch our last episode if you're interested in that. Um, But the bottom line is that there is not a convincing theory of consciousness that really tells us exactly what is going on, at least in our eyes. Um, and I think that this provides a little bit of room to say, okay, maybe there is some causal power to consciousness, albeit highly, highly constrained. And it is a causal power that is fully everyday, normal type of thing. I'm not saying that now that, you know, that consciousness has the power to, to, uh, I don't know, do anything in the world. This is not like a type of Deepak Chopra (laughs) argument, but, um, Anyway, I, that's kind of where I've come to with this. That's, that's resonating with me a lot. Um, one of the things that I think it bugged me a lot about some of the stuff that we got into looking into Sam Harris and everything, I remember listening to one of his talks and there was a point where he said, but we still have to remember that our choices are important. And that like put a red flag up. I was like, wait a minute. Like you've been trying to convince me this entire time that we don't have any choices and now you're telling me my choices are important. And then he followed up a little bit later saying, we also have to recognize that there's a big difference between voluntary and involuntary action. And then again, like another red flag went up. I'm like, okay, how are you using the term voluntary at all? If your entire argument is that will doesn't exist, because if you're trying to say that like there's a difference between voluntary and involuntary action, that means that we're somehow making voluntary actions. 
And this really gets into, like Andrew said, we've talked a lot about attention on this show. Uh, and there's two main systems of attention. There's uh, an exogenous attention system, which is driven by the external environment, right? And it's it's something that's very adaptive. It's it's something that like if there's something dangerous in my in my view and in, in the sounds that I'm hearing, whatever, that's gonna pull me, right? If there's a baseball flying at my face. I'm not choosing to look at that baseball. Like I'm being pulled to that for safety reasons in order for the, the organism to protect itself, right? But the opposite of that is endogenous intention, which is voluntarily controlled. You know, Mike Posner has this entire career that he built around studying voluntary attention. It's something that we can get better at. It's something that that we can we can shift, right? And I think one of the, the most kind of uh, really kind of good arguments for free will is the fact that we have so many competing needs at any given moment as humans, right? You look at a worm, right? And a worm even has a lot of competing needs, right? He's he's measuring kind of chemical gradients and he's able to kind of smell and decide to move this way or decide to move that way, looking for food sources, running away from predators, right? Uh, a lot of that is kind of at the lower end of Maslow's pyramid, right? Because we as humans are still kind of doing all of these survival things. We have we have hunger pains, we're thirsty, we're this, we're that, we're, we're trying to protect ourselves from external threats. But we also have all of these social needs that we're balancing in any given moment, right? We have these responsibility needs about what I need to accomplish uh, 10 minutes from now, five minutes from now, uh, a year from now, right? All of these things that are impinging on my reserved amount of time, right? I only have a certain amount of time in the day to get all of these needs done. And I think what Andrew is getting to is really powerful because our ability to shift our attention, I think is really what will is, is our brain is figuring all of these things out. I mean, that's something that we've talked about a lot on this show is that like our, like, like Sam Harris says, our thoughts are arising from somewhere, right? We have this default mode network in our brain that's keeping track of all of these needs. It's saying like, where are we with our social relationships? Where are we with our responsibilities for bringing in financial stability and all of these things? And it's tracking where we're at for all of these goals that are long-term goals, short-term goals, all of this. And all of those things are kind of arising and impinging on us in every given moment. But we, in that moment, are able to decide whether or not like, you know what, I'm going to stop that thought and I'm going to go with this one. Right. And I think that that process of inhibition is really important to cue in on that. I think a lot of what will is, is stopping the deterministic stuff. And Patrick Haggard makes a really good argument for, for Will. He's, he's someone that does a lot of these kind of follow-ups to the, the limit experiment. He's actually noticed that the readiness potential that we talked about earlier, that, that subjects can actually stop their movement. So if, if I have this buildup of activity, I'm about to move, I'm able to say, you know what? No, I'm not going to. I'm able to inhibit that action, right? And so it shows that we have all of this stuff building up. We have our brain is planning for this, for planning for that. We have all of these parallel action plans that are being kind of coordinated and figured out in our brain. But I think that there's something that is able to say, you know what, I'm not going to, to reflexively do that. I'm going to inhibit those reflexive movements. And the, the argument that Patrick Haggard makes is the importance of that is that allows us to learn right? That will is what gives us the ability to say, I'm not going to do the same thing I did 10,000 other times. That's reflexive. That's deterministic. That's built into the system. I'm going to inhibit all of that stuff. And I'm going to choose a different path. And then I'm going to measure the outcome 
And that's going to teach my system how to do it next time. Yeah, that's it's a definitely an interesting concept, an interesting idea. I know uh, um, Michael Shermer, the uh, science writer, publisher of Skeptic Magazine, has called it free won't instead of free will. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure if I'm fully convinced by that idea. I still, I think it's still subject to a lot of the things that we've been taught, the, the uh, arguments against free will, I think apply mm -hmm. maybe equally well to free won't. Um, but yeah. I, I, it's, it's something I, I feel like I need to, to digest a little more uh, before I <laughs> say too much about it. Because it is there is something to inhibiting behavior that seems uh, willful. It's it's tough because I'm in the same boat as, as you, Andrew. There's there's a lot of me that uh, has it really kind of teetered back and forth between like hard determinism and like the ability of us to have any will at all. Um, I think the reason I lean towards a lot of the will stuff is that it really empowers us a lot. It gives us the ability to to make our lives better, to choose to to do something healthy versus unhealthy, right? Um, there's a lot of studies that have been done in terms of like our beliefs about free will. If we believe that everything is deterministic, we act differently. <laughs> we, we, we make more unhealthy decisions. We cheat more. We do all of these things, right? Um, but it really gives us a lot more of the responsibility back when we start to think like, okay, maybe we are kind of in some way in ha we have some type of causal power on these lower systems. And we could just be kind of the, the kind of higher order cognitive processes that are happening. Yeah, but they may yeah. still be determined. <laughs> that's yeah, 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 that's entirely possible. Oh, sorry, it sounds like I'm getting an echo. Weird, huh? Um, well, uh, okay, so yeah, I, I think that is a really great point when it when it comes to I think a lot of the work in like positive psychology that we've we've talked about on a previous couple episodes. Um, it at least, if we kind of put the free will debate aside, the sort of metaphysical debate aside, and we just talk about, you know, what beliefs are really beneficial for people to have. And I, I think that um, the work of like Martin Seligman and uh, Carol Dweck, uh, these people who, who looked at kind of the difference between believing that you have control and taking action on the basis of that belief as being psychologically healthy and beneficial is something that we should think about when talking about free will. Because I think that conversations like this, when we, you know, we're, we're taking, I think, a, a pretty balanced view, but but when you hear the the deterministic arguments, it kind of feels like well, then what's, what am I even doing? What's the point of even doing anything at all? And I think, you know, to be fair, both Sam Harris and Robert Sapolsky and all these people we've mentioned are not saying just sit back and don't do anything. Like you could try, Sam Harris has this thought experiment, just try sitting back and doing nothing and see how long that lasts. Eventually you're going to have to get up and make a choice and do something. Um, so I think we can all kind of come to this point where, it, it is the organism, right? It is the brain. It is this body, this, you know, human being that is making a decision. And we can, we can think of it in that light and think of ourselves as that organism, as the human, as the brain, and understand that we can make better decisions. We can make worse decisions. And that in some sense, this organism has control 
over that that decision making process. So uh, that's kind of that's where I've landed with it. Uh, I mean that that ties into uh, I, I think this kind of last piece. We'll we'll get in a little bit to, to Kevin Mitchell's work because that really ties in. I think Andrew to a lot of his ideas around it that the decision making, the control process is a very holistic process. It's something that is the entire organism, right? It's what's meaningful to the entire organism that needs to be decided on. I, I like to think a lot about consciousness as kind of being the situation room for like a government, right? It's where all the important information is like at the table, right? And it's where the big decisions are being made that affect the entire community, right? Uh, and a lot of Kevin Mitchell's work, he said, you know, most of what we do in neuroscience is that we assume determinism from, from the get-go. Uh, and then we try to figure out whether or not there's any wiggle room from there. Uh, he took a very different stance and he said, let's look at this evolutionarily and let's, instead of assuming deterministic kind of stuff, uh, let's assume some type of uh, organismal holistic control that life has, right? Uh, and he starts to argue against kind of these mechanistic processes of understanding everything through mechanism, which is this kind of reductionist approach, right? Uh, that the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because of the the networks that are controlled by neurons that are controlled by the, the calcium and the everything that's kind of coming along with it, right? Um, all the way down to said, electrons, right? Yeah. All the way down to electrons, right? Uh, but he said, you know, the way that we study these things make it makes it look very mechanistic. And he gives the example of like bacteria as being kind of these really simple control agents, right? Uh, it tries to make the case for like minimal agency. What is required for the, the kind of smallest amount of agency? Because life behaves very differently than non-life, right? And when you study bacteria, you usually do it in a very controlled way where you have only one thing that the that the bacteria can do and you trace like what it's able to do with that information. Um, and when you do that, you say, okay, this thing leads to this thing leads to this thing because it's all controlled in your experiment. But when you look at a bacteria in real life, it's not just solving one problem. It's looking at the chemical gradient. It's looking at osmotic pressure. It's looking at whether or not it's in contact with other bacterium and sharing information with other bacterium. It's looking at the pH of the environment. And there's all of this different information that's all being integrated. And there's lots of cases where there are equal opportunities if I go left or if I go right. And what is actually happening in those moments? Is it purely deterministic that they're, it's somehow just pushing them right? Or is there some type of weighted process, some type of holistic kind of integrative control mechanism that we call will that is allowing that organism to integrate all that information and make a decision? And then he builds up from that into complex organisms, the, the neural nets that make up kind of early multicellular organisms as neurons come on the, the scene and starts to show that as you get more and more complex, you're able to integrate information in more and more complex ways. And it creates this gradient of, of agency like we talked about earlier, where you have these early, these really simple organisms maybe making decisions, but they're incredibly constrained. And now we, as really complex organisms, are making these incredibly complex, like deliberative, long-term versus short-term, where am I pointing my attention, right? Uh, that it becomes this, this arena for a different type of will that allows us to accomplish the things that we do as humans. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that gradient is important to keep in mind because uh, um, uh, Kevin Mitchell is point, quick to point out, he's not saying 
that he thinks that bacteria have consciousness or metacognition or any of these, uh, you know, higher level mental processes. He actually calls, in their case, he, he refers to it as proto-agency. So it's, um, uh, you know, prior to, you know, agency proper, which human beings have. Awesome. We have a lot of activity in the you chat. Really We've been trying to get through all of our uh, all yeah. of our points. So we're, we apologize for not addressing all of these, but I think we can take a stab at some of these. So I think AI language model development provide more insights, perspectives on free will. So they're fundamentally probabilistic machines and are inching close to average human intelligence. Uh, this is a really interesting idea, right? Uh, and it's something that I think there's a lot of split in the field. Someone like Kevin Mitchell actually believes that we can create uh, intelligent machines that are capable of the kind of will that, that we have. Um, and I think a lot of that, like you said, is based on this probabilistic thing. But he believes, as, as do a lot of neuroscientists, that there's a fundamental component to consciousness that's embodied that the reason why we're making decisions the way that we are is because we have needs, because we have certain things that we have to replenish and protect and all of these things. Um, and it's that which actually gives us some type of selfhood and agency that we want to kind of bring into the future in a temporal component. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really important. I just this just came to mind. We'll get to more of these chat questions, but uh, I think it's yeah, just yeah. one one thing to think about with uh, Kevin Mitchell is he he is a um, he's also a, a uh, what do you call him like a behavioral geneticist basically. So he's not denying that there are all these constraints on behavior and that our genes play a huge role in who we are. He actually wrote a book, a really good book called. Uh, called wired or something. I can't remember actually what it's called, but it's about um, how brain wiring determines who we are and how genetics are a part of that. Um, and, uh, and another person who kind of takes a really similar line as Kevin Mitchell is uh, Steven Pinker, who also wrote a book about why uh, biology is important for understanding um, our behavior and, and why evolution is important. So it's it's not just I just didn't want people to get the impression that it's just these fringe scientists who you know are kind of coming up with these wacky mystical ideas. They're they're really you know, hardcore um, uh, scientists who are who talk about <laughs> some form of free will at least. But anyway, let's okay, let's get through. Check out another one of these. Um, Okay. We apologize for not mentioning more of Sugar's work. They definitely had a big contribution here. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of people that are in this arena, uh, and uh, we focused on a couple of them. But we definitely have to recognize the fact that, uh, especially from the get go of discovering the readiness potential and discovering kind of Libet's experiments and all of these things, that this created a cascade of people that were interested in trying to figure out whether or not this exists or not. And there's tons of papers that have explored this. Yeah. Okay. So let's see, we got one, uh, another one from Yadidia, uh, said, if I pick Tokyo now, would I pick Tokyo if I was asked again in a different timeline where I wasn't aware of my first decision, given everything is constant, the decision must remain consistent. That's a really, I, that's a really interesting question. That goes back to when we were talking about, you know, think of a city and then say she or this person saying Tokyo comes to mind. Uh, would I pick Tokyo again? You know, if you were to rewind the clock, basically, uh, given that you weren't aware of that decision. Um, and that's an open question. That's something that that Kevin Mitchell would say, not necessarily you would you might or might not. This system is uh, dynamic and it is probabilistic. So it's um, 
Maybe, maybe not. I mean, this gets into the idea of the quantum mechanic in, indeterminacy idea, because people like Sapolsky and Sam Harris would say, absolutely, you rewind the clock, you put the system back into the exact state that, was, that it was in, and you're going to come to Tokyo every single time that happens. Um, but that, and then you have Kevin Mitchell that's like, well, we don't live in this completely deterministic world. We have this indeterminacy that's built into the system. Uh, something that I haven't mentioned that it really kind of weighs on me a lot thinking about the consciousness and will and all of these things uh, is the double slit experiment that was done in physics. I don't know if you're aware of that, mm -hmm. uh, but they basically, they said, you know, we have, we have this board here that has a slit in the middle and we have another board behind it. That's going to catch anything that comes through it. And when you shoot just like marbles through it, like normal matter, you end up with a pattern of one line on the back wall because that's what made, made it through. And then when you have a board that has two slits, you end up with two lines on the back wall because that's what made it through. But when you do this with electrons, you end up with something that looks like a wave pattern. Instead of, so if you do it with one slit, you still get one on the back wall. But if you do it with two slits, you end up with seven lines on the back wall. And this idea is what comes from like wave physics. So if I drop a marble in, in water and this wave hits the board, then it goes through those two slits and then those two waves make four waves, those four waves make seven waves, whatever. Uh, they were really puzzled by this. They were saying, okay, why is why are electrons that should be like marbles, they should just be small pieces of matter, why are they acting like waves? And so they put a little device in there to try to measure what the actual electron was doing. They're saying, okay, it's either going through one of the slits and not the other one, or it's going through both of them, or it's not going through either of them. So we're gonna watch the electron. We're gonna see where it goes. And when they put this device in there to watch the electron, all of a sudden the electron started acting like a marble. The probabilistic wave function collapsed. Now, the reason I'm bringing all of this up, I know that it's kind of like out there, it's not neuroscience or whatever, but it gives this element of observation to kind of the collapse of the quantum realm, right? That there's something about consciousness. There's something about us as observers that change the probabilistic function of the electron, that make it collapse and behave like we expect it to behave. And that's something that's always kind of like stuck with me in terms of like, does consciousness itself have some type of causal power over the way that matter appears? Does the act of interacting with the world cause it to act like we expect it to? That is that is interesting. I my only thing about that, um, my understanding is that it doesn't have to be a, a conscious observer, or it can be a like an electronic detector mm -hmm. uh, that causes that um, collapse. I'm not even going to say anything more because I have no <laughs> expertise in physics, and uh, but I yeah I I um I'm not sure about that, but it is it is just the the idea that that there's this probabilistic nature to, uh, to matter, uh, is, is really interesting. Yeah. Um, we have another one here. Um, let's see if I can, if we can, uh, talk about this a little bit. So Chavis says, uh, do anthropocentric methodologies emerging from the mesolimbic cingulate amygdala and insula hinder assessing spatial, temporal, and cognitive freedom limiting our ability to exceed limitations that question may be too intelligent for me to <laughs> uh but i think do you want to take a stab at it taylor um i'm not sure exactly what it's asking asking honestly 
Um, I think that, I mean, the first part of the question, do anthropocentric methodologies, I mean, that would be methodologies that are completely centered on studying humans, the way that human cognition uh, is formed. Uh, does this hinder our assessing of spatial, temporal, and cognitive freedom? Um, that part of it kind of hints at a lot of what Kevin Mitchell gets into in terms of really understanding the spatial and temporal qualities of the information in the system. And that that information having meaning, uh, because when we look at like this causal chain that's that's argued in terms of determinism, right? We say that this neuron is firing because the neuron before it fired and that's causing this kind of causal chain of things that happen. But that's not really how things happen in the brain. This neuron is firing because it's weighing the inputs of lots of different neurons. It's not that this neuron is firing and it's causing these other ones to go. It's that there's this pattern that has meaning to this neuron that causes it to then fire and send the signal to the next one. Um, and that gives it this kind of spatial and temporal property that could provide for some type of kind of cognitive freedom or control or whatever that may be. Uh, and it looks like looks like we may have uh, lost Andrew. He's frozen with his eyes closed. <laughs> um, so we we actually we're we're a bit over time. We really appreciate all of the active kind of engagement in the chat. Uh, we hope to see you guys again. We're going to be making some changes for the show for next year. Uh, we're going to be doing some kind of bonus episodes for for Patreon members that kind of link ideas between previous episodes that we've done. Um, but we just want to say thank you. This is really fun to do this and to kind of dive into these topics and explore all of this stuff. Um, and so. Uh, if you guys have any ideas for us on what you want us to cover next or uh, anything like that, then and please let us know. Um, but I will patiently wait for Andrew to <laughs> to come back on, and we will see you guys for the next one.